This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. If I'm in an all-African-American church, which is maybe the MSNBC crowd, Black Lives Matter is the title of my sermon, and I push, 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 and rah, rah, rah. Or if I'm in a conservative evangelical church, maybe I don't even talk about it. Or if I talk about it, I slant it towards what's happened to the Dallas police people, and that's my Fox News crowd. That's easy. Cater to your constituency. The hard part is, in a multi-ethnic church, who is your constituency? It's a little bit of everybody. here today with Ted Olson. Hi. So Ted, you're not Morgan. I am not Morgan. And you're not Caitlin. She's still on a mountain. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she's not still on a mountain. I've been saying she's on a mountain for weeks. I know. She's back. She's, she's back from her mountain, but now she's conquering Mount. Glowing like Moses. Now she's conquering Mount CT Magazine 100% week. It's so going to be a great issue. It's going to be an amazing issue. And it's an important issue. It's the 60th anniversary issue. You can get the issue. If you go to orderct.com slash the calling. It's $10. It's a good deal. You'll you will get this issue for sure. And you'll also get the September issue, which is an amazing issue. Talks about a lot of stuff. Really, the theme in this issue is race, I would say. Uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, the life after prison cover story definitely goes beyond uh, race issues, but there's there are overtones for sure. Yeah, and there's an editorial, a Where We Stand editorial about our God moment on race, which is to say evangelicals are starting to slowly... But somewhat surely wake up to the fact that race is an important thing to pay attention to. There are problems out there that we haven't been paying attention to in the way we should have. Yeah. That's changing. And there's another pretty awesome editorial on actual research on what people are doing wrong in trying to attract millennials to their church. Great stories, and they all play into the interview we have today, which is with Brian Loritz. Do you know who oh, Brian yeah. Loritz is? I love Brian Ted Loritz. Ted knows Brian Loritz. I told him I wasn't going to tell him who it was, and I surprised him. It's Brian Loritz. Yeah, it's Brian Loritz is great. He's got a new book out. Yeah, so he's written uh, his previous book you may know him from is called Right Color, Wrong Culture, The Type of Leader Your Organization Needs to Become Multi-Ethnic. He's a big proponent of the concept of multi-ethnic churches, mm-hmm. which is good. And he, but in a different way than people might be, uh, oh yeah, familiar with it. Yes, yeah, so he is big, and we actually talk about this a little bit in the interview. He he wants to create an environment where, well, we'll let him talk about it. Yeah, we don't want to give it all away. Right? Yeah, I don't need to give it all away. He's got a new book coming out in October called "Saving the Saved: How Jesus Saves Us from Try Harder Christianity into Performance Free Love." That title resonates with me. I don't know about you. Oh yeah. So it sounds like that'll be good. You can go to Amazon now and pre-order that if you want. Thanks to ERLC for setting this interview up. We got about 20 minutes. <laughs> you got exactly 20 we minutes. We got exactly 20 minutes. If you time it on the podcast, it is. it really is 20 minutes. And then we had to go. But uh, it's a solid 20 minutes. You'll notice it's a little different for most interviews because I was like, we don't have time to talk. Let's just go. What's your calling? What's your calling? Tell me. And he told me. It was a great interview, though. There's some good stuff in here, we thought. Yeah, this is good enough. So what you're really recommending is that because it's only 20 minutes, people should listen to it and then listen to it again. 
Yeah. If you listen to it twice, you'll really get the full calling experience. Right. Um, if this is your first episode of The Calling, normally they're a little longer, a little more involved, a little more weird and personal. But this is I still talk, good. I think the real the thing that's really missing from this episode is where I talk about myself a lot. Yeah. Because That's okay. We're handling that in the intro here. Yeah. So what else should I talk about myself? Um when uh, I'm going on vacation this week. All right. Anyway, here's our interview with Brian Lawrence. Enjoy. So you're from Silicon Valley. I am pastor church there in the Bay Area. How would you define your calling? Ooh, so I would say that God has called me to use my gifts of leadership and preaching and teaching to build multi-ethnic churches. Okay, so there's a focus on multi-ethnic churches uniquely for you, it seems like. Uh, Silicon Valley is not known as like really a really diverse place, at least from the outside, right? Oh, it is. Absolutely. It it is a diverse place? Oh, it's probably one of the most diverse places I've ever lived in. So that is that a a misconception that you hear a lot? Or is it it just No, you're the first one. Really? (laughs) I am ignorant. You got to get out more, so yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about the tech industry. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about. So yes. Now, if by multi-ethnic you want to include African-Americans, the tech world is woefully falling short as it relates to African-American representation. However... The tech world, I was just on, uh, one of our elders is uh, is an executive with one of the companies out there, and I was on this campus visiting him, and I mean, Indians all over the place, and whites, and Asians, and uh, Pacific Islanders, yeah. absolutely. Now, African Americans, there is a mass exodus. So, for example, East Palo Alto, which is in Silicon Valley, in the 90s used to be 98% African American. Now that number has dropped to 18%. Part of that is just gentrification and the complexities of that and the rising costs of real estate, so on and so forth. When uh, was it that you personally came to this awareness of that calling, not just preaching and teaching, but that the multi-ethnic aspect of it? In general, I'm just a big believer that a lot of people's passion comes out of their pain. So I, I just always instruct people, like if you are, it's not it's not a across the board rule, but it's just a general indicator light. So if you're wondering what you're passionate about, take a look at some of your pain. So uh, those people I know in social work, for example, who are really committed towards helping kids. Well, you look under the hood there, there's some pain. My narrative is the same. Uh, some hurt in some evangelical institutions that uh, that I matriculated through in the formative years of my life, some insensitivities that happened there, momentary feelings of anger, uh, that over time the Holy Spirit just said to me, either I can continue to stew in anger slash bitterness, or I could be a part of the solution. So in my early 20s, I would say about 23, 24, I began to have that, hmm, kind of a moment where I just said, you know, instead of me just kind of being a Monday morning quarterback, pointing out all the things that are wrong, what if I was part of the solution? And that just kind of began this odyssey into the multi-ethnic church. What were some of the problems that you experienced? I think the last horizon we need to face as it relates to kind of, uh, I'm calling it evangelical passivity. I think that's just a good phrase to call it. So I think when people hear racism, they think KKK, dogs biting people, water being, you know, turned on to little kids on the streets of Birmingham in 1963. So that's a huge disconnect. I think evangelical passivity is really at the heart of things right now. And so the way I felt that was sitting in preaching classes and never once hearing among my professors examples of people of color who were great preachers. 
All my examples were Charles Spurgeon, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, so on and so forth. Or I make it through Bible college and seminary, not once do I read a book written by a person of color. So it's just kind of this, um, there was a great book that came out in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, called The Invisible Man. And it's an ingenious book. And in this book, the lead character, who's black during the Jim Crow era, has no name. And I'm reading that book and I'm going, boom, that's me. In the white evangelical world I grew up in, I had no name. Did you attend uh, a church during this time that was mostly white? I grew up in an all-black church. Okay. So I grew up in a Baptist black church, independent Baptist, uh, on the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. Yeah. And now you're in Silicon Valley. Now I'm in Silicon Valley. Why the, why the move? What's even more striking is I planted a multi-ethnic church in Memphis. So I want to go to the toughest place to do it, and God did incredible work, and yeah. um, God just called us. Because you saw, called so us. Memphis was the toughest place to do it for what reason? So when we did our statistical analysis using the 2000 census we planted in 2003, Memphis was the most segregated city yeah. in the country along black and white lines. Right. So, and that really bore itself out for, if you just look at such metrics as the poverty line uh, or average incomes, those I mean, it's the disparity is pretty general throughout the country, but they were the most stark difference in the city of Memphis. Right. So we figured if we could plant one there and it would grow and flourish, then no one would have an excuse not to do it in any town. So, you know, God was gracious to us. A couple thousand people ended up coming and 65% white, 35% African American. And was that your first church plant? First and only, Lord willing. First and only. <laughs> so then, so the Silicon Valley was not a church plant. No, no. Okay. I stepped into an existing church uh, that had gone through some pain. They'd just gone through a church split. And so I just felt like they reached out to me through a lot of prayer, felt like this is what the Lord wanted us to do. It's the most multi-ethnic, diverse church I've ever been to in my life. So it was already multi-ethnic at the time. Yes. Wow. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, so I want to go back to this first church plant. Yeah. yeah. What I want to know what you learned from that because I think church planting is like a really popular yeah. idea yeah. <laughs> right now. Right. People are really interested. And I think one of the reasons is because when you're in it, you're like one of the reasons it's so popular to like talk about, at least from my perspective, yeah. as like an editor, yeah. you put out stuff on church planning, everyone's going to read it. Yeah. It's because they'll take anything they can get yeah. Yeah. to just tell them how to survive yeah. and hang on. What was that your experience? Was it an issue of like survival versus thriving? Was that, was it something that felt like uh, a little desperate at times or? So uh, looking back to the rearview mirror, I would say, man, of all the places I've lived, when I die, if you're going to bury me, bury me in Memphis. Because I, I, I'm a big believer that 
I think our greatest joys are tied into our greatest sacrifices. I probably shouldn't use this analogy. From what I hear, church planting is like childbirth, where it's this excruciating thing. It's really hard. It really is hard. Most church plants fail. But if you can come through that, the joy that's on the other side of it, of having been a part of birthing something, was absolutely amazing. So my recommendation, we were crazy. So we had we started with 26 people in the living room, but four full-time staff. It's a big living room. Yeah, it is. people. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, our overhead the first year, between salaries, office locations, and then we ended up renting space for Sunday morning gathering, we had to raise like $300,000 that first year. So, but I wouldn't do it any other way. I, I think when you go in as a team... And there's yeah. a sense of relationship united around a common mission. I think that's the groundwork for success. I would never recommend someone just planting by themselves. That's counterintuitive because why would you hire a bunch of staff for a thing that doesn't exist? Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, so, but you, so from the beginning, you had this understanding that a team w- was important. It's absolutely important. And let me say something else that's going to sound a little carnal. I'm also a big believer, I think most guys planting churches right now, just aren't ready. So it's not as mystical. There's not a whole lot of secret sauce to it. Obviously, there's the God side. God's got to send the rain. We're the hardworking farmer. But too many guys are too green in their gift, and they're still practicing. And I coach some of these guys. I'm going, there's no real secret as to why your church isn't flourishing. I think churches that flourish have, have three great things, great mission, great preaching, and great leadership. So, but if you're still practicing your gifts and you're not ready, uh, that's just just a tough sell. The guys who I've seen who have flourished have already put in what Malcolm Gladwell calls their 10,000 hours. How do people practice? If not by planning a church, like what do you, how do you put those 10,000 hours? So I think when you study the Bible, any significant leader God has ever used has always spent a significant period of time in ambiguity. So if I can just take Moses, 40 years shepherding sheep. Now, we know in the aftermath, that wasn't wasted time. God pretty much says, I'm going to take those lessons and ambiguity of shepherding sheep for 40 years as part of your next assignment, shepherding my sheep. So I would say to a guy, serve consistently on staff, learn just that whole process, exercise a teaching gift. You know, it could be a college pastor, young adults pastor, whatever. I don't want to put an age on it because Lord knows Charles Spurgeon was 19 when he started, okay? (laughs) So I don't want to say, what I'm saying is just general wisdom. There's always exceptions. But if you're 20-something years old and you really haven't sat up under somebody and you really haven't exercised your gift, don't be surprised when you plant your church that not a whole lot of people are going to come for a long time because you're still practicing. Yeah, it's so funny. When I went to a seminary and when you get there, you realize everyone around you has a plan to like... Pay for seminary by being a pastor. So you want to get to seminary and you want to be a pastor right. immediately. Yeah. But what's funny is the church I went to was full of seminary students. All were like gunning. It, they had already given up on the pastor thing because you get there and you're like, oh, there's no jobs like, yeah. for pastors. Yeah. So we're all working at like Panera and Starbucks. Yeah. yeah. But um, the church itself like has to have adopt this philosophy of like, if you want to prepare for ministry, you're already going to seminary. So you got that. Be in a part of a good church and serve in that church. Be a, If you're not in the nursery, you're going to have problems serving as a pastor. Absolutely. If you're not helping with cleanup on Saturdays in the park or whatever, Absolutely. you're going to have an issue. So it was really interesting. And 
and a, a learning experience for me to go like a lot of this real life stuff and especially like the work part, like the real life work, yeah. having a job, yeah. super important. And also, if you just look at the sports world, right? So baseball has a minor league farm system. Mm -hmm. So what baseball says is we'll draft you, but it's the rare exception that you're going to come up to the majors right away. Mm -hmm. You're going to spend some years in ambiguity or even in the NBA. NBA, you know, you can leave after one year in college, but most of those guys don't hit the floor running doing great stuff unless you're LeBron James. You you got to you got to get your legs up under you. Um, you know, even in football, rookie quarterbacks typically have a miserable first year or they spend 3 years apprenticing. So, I would just say I love the ambition, but when Paul tells Timothy flee youthful lust, that word's not sexual. It's just this idea of unfettered ambition. Paul is telling Timothy, take your time. So I would say that to young leaders. Take your time, stew, marinate in your gifts, and then when God's ready to unleash you, you'll be unleashed. Right. What would you say is your has been your biggest struggle in working out this calling and, and while you're living out this calling of pastoring and leading a multi-ethnic church? So the issue of race is still, man, it's America's historic sin, right? So it's still like it's a wound and to slightly touch it. So the, so in July, right, we have all this crazy stuff happening. And, you know, the thing happens in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and, and that man gets killed, Alton Sterling. And then Philando Castile happens the next day. And then these Dallas police officers are brutally massacred by an evil person. And so I go, huh, I got to speak into this at our church. It's my first time at the church actually speaking into race. And that was a that was a remarkable week because that'll happen in the course of one week, yes, right? And yes. When when did the Dallas thing happen? Was that over the weekend? Yeah, it was over the weekend of yeah. that very same week. So you have very little time to prepare a statement. It's not the thing like the Pulse shoot, nightclub shooting was like maybe you didn't hear about. Yeah. It. So but this was you had to. But here's the beauty though of a multi ethnic church. Yeah. It's the beauty and the mess. So I've got these multi-ethnic faces there, which is wonderful, but the problem is they all have different perspectives. So literally after that message, I had an African-American man come up to me and said, I wish you would have pushed a little harder. I had a white woman come up to me all offended because I'd pushed too hard. That's the beauty and the mess. Now, what's easier is to preach that in a homogenous church. So, and I'm stereotyping, but if I'm in an all African-American church, which is maybe the MSNBC crowd... Black Lives Matter is the title of my sermon, and I push, 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 and rah, rah, rah. Or if I'm in a conservative evangelical church, maybe I don't even talk about it. Or if I talk about it, I slant it towards what's happened to the Dallas police people, and that's my Fox News crowd, right? So when you – that's easy. Cater to your constituency. The hard part is in a multi-ethnic church, who is your constituency? It's a little bit of everybody. Right. <laughs> but what I don't want to do is – preach these airy, balanced messages. I don't think God calls it to be balanced, calls it to be radical, where you end up saying a lot but nothing. So what does it look like to be bold and prophetic and pastoral amongst, amongst a sea of people who see it differently? Dr. Corey Edwards says, if you are a member of homogenous church, you're actually more likely to be racist. Because being around people who don't challenge your personal preferences and cultural norms actually entrenches your biased worldviews. So that's why I'm committed to the multi-ethnic church. It's, hey, sitting on the same row are a bunch of people who see it differently. Now, how can we work that out in love and not try to clone each other into our own image? And it's interesting that the struggle you have in a multi-ethnic church is actually 
it's it's not like you're all on the same page. A lot of people assume if a person joins a multi-ethnic church, they're joining for a reason, and that reason is they like totally get it or whatever. It's the hip thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah. right. But there's actually like people there who don't like no none of us. None of us get everything, so right. you're having to kind of communicate all the Absolutely. things to all the people. So what did you say? Well, well here's, a, here's another that, scenario that I think will speak to that. Okay. Most of my elders are African-American, right? This is what, kind of what I inherited. The head of Trump's campaign for Santa Clara County goes to my church. She asks, <laughs> she asks uh-huh. that we would lay hands on her and pray for her and anoint her with oil. In her labors as the head of the Trump campaign. I tell her I'm not going to do that in, in service just for obvious reasons. I don't want to come across as endorsing a, a political uh, party or, or, or an individual. But we did it after service in my office. And before that, there was a few people who a few of my elders were like, uh, let's talk about this because they see it differently. And I'm going, we're not, we're not anointing a political candidate. We're just saying her work has dignity. Let's ask God to give her wisdom and bless her. But that's the beauty of the multi-ethnic church. If I'm in an all-black church, that doesn't happen. You're walking a tightrope all the time. Yep, that doesn't happen. But I'm going, that's the kingdom. Yeah. That's the kingdom. What what would you say is like your biggest fear in carrying this out? I don't have a fear. I, I think some of my concerns, I think, again, Dr. Corey Edwards, PhD, wonderful Jesus lo- lover, associate professor of sociology at The Ohio State University. She helps us understand there's three kinds of multi-ethnic churches. First layer is the multicolor multi-ethnic church. These are people who just show up on Sunday of different ethnicities, then they go home, there's no real interaction together. Sort of like the NBA All-Star Game. Right, where you get people from different teams, show up to the event, play in the event, yeah. then go back to their teams. Yeah. That's the most superficial level. I have a concern that we'll be that way. Or the second level is the assimilated multi-ethnic church, yeah. where it's people, it's multi-ethnic monocultural. It's where people of different ethnicities come together, but they assimilate into one culture. Typically, that culture is white. We had this happen to us in Memphis all the time. Black people come to you after service, go, oh, pastor, that was so amazing, almost shouted. And I'm going, well, why didn't you? <laughs> Yeah. Why didn't you? Yeah. Well, in their own way, they said, well, we looked around and got the memo. Right. They were looking to white people for permission, and they didn't get it. That's a concern of mine. Sure. At the deepest level is the integrated multi-ethnic church. That's where you have a genuine coming together, a submission of personal preferences and cultural norms, because it honors your neighbor. That's what I want to get to. So I don't, I don't want to be just that hip church that all these different people come together on Sunday mornings. And then we break and go back to our own teams. That's a real concern. If you got into a time machine, went back in time, stepped out of it, introduced yourself to yourself in the past, what would you tell him? Okay. First, I was, I was thinking, uh, you're asking that question as a black man. I'm going, no other point in human history do I want to go to. Sure. This is as good as it gets for me right now. Yeah. Um, but if I could talk to my younger self, I would say a couple of things. One, be patient. I was just, I was such in a hurry to get to where I wanted to get to. And two, I would say, honestly, you just need to sit in John 15 and just learn to abide in Christ. And if you can cultivate a lifestyle as a leader of abiding in Christ, and it's out of that that everything else flows, I think I focus too much on competencies, skill sets, which are good, but the main thing is just an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Which looks like what? Deep prayer. I just hate that now in my 
Well, I, I started it in my late 30s. I just hate I didn't get to that sooner. Did I pray yes? Did I abide? I don't think so. I think this quiet time mentality is sabotaging the church. Give God 30 minutes and the other 23 and a half hours are yours. No, it's, it's abiding. So I would, I'd have that talk with myself. You've been listening to The Calling. Brian Lawrence is the author of Right Color, Wrong Culture, The Type of Leader Your Organization Needs to Become Multi-Ethnic. He's also the author of the upcoming Saving the Saved, How Jesus Saves Us from Try-Harder Christianity into Performance-Free Love. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Thing music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.